We made it out of the genealogy. Yes. <laughs> Somebody asked me that this morning. They were like, are we back in the names? I was like, no, we've, we've progressed past the names. So we've been making our way through uh, Matthew chapter 1 for our Advent journey. And, and last week we did spend more time uh, in the genealogy. And we specifically looked at four names that we find there. Um, specifically four women. Uh, Tamar, and Rahab, and Ruth, and Bathsheba. And one of the things that we observed last week was that these aren't the names that you would expect to find in a royal genealogy, and certainly not in the genealogy of the Messiah. For one, the appearance of women at all, let alone these four Gentile women, is quite surprising. And we noted that Matthew is signaling something to us about the kind of Messiah Jesus is by their inclusion. Because many of these stories attached to these women were messy and scandalous. And this morning we come to the last woman mentioned in the genealogy, which is Mary. And the same sort of scandal that was with the other women attached itself to her as well, at least on the surface. Matthew's going to tell us the story from Joseph's vantage point. Mary's spouse finds himself in a real quandary as we read this story. He faces a hard decision about what to do with this child inside of Mary's womb that is not his. And in reality, Joseph is representative of all of us because just as Joseph had to decide what to do, we also must decide what to do with this child. And so this morning what I want to do is I, I want us to consider the story that Matthew is telling us in three parts. I want to, I want to look at Joseph's dilemma. Then I want to consider Joseph's dream. And then finally we'll look at Joseph's decision. And we'll see in in this drama, in this narrative, in three parts, how Joseph represents each of us. Let me pray for us as we dive in. God, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would help us. And God, the kind of help that we need is not the kind where you just lend us a hand, God. We need your Holy Spirit to come do something in us that we can't do for ourselves or in ourselves. We need your spirit to not only give us understanding, but to give us illumination. That God, even as we look at this story of a virgin birth, that there would be a birth that would take place in our hearts. So God, would you come and do what only you can do through the preaching of your word in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look first at Joseph's dilemma. We, we, we find out in the text that Joseph and Mary were set to be married. In fact, in a sense, they kind of already were. Verse, verse 18 tells us in, in the CSB version that they were engaged. And I, and I think what the translators are doing is they're, they're, they're grabbing a term that's familiar to us, right? We're, we're familiar with this idea of, of engagement. What happens typically with an engagement is that when someone wishes 
when, when a man wishes to marry a woman, he gets on a knee and he asks her to be his wife. Typically, he's supposed to ask her, her father first for permission to do so. And then he gives the woman a ring. It's a, it's a pledge. It's a demonstration of his love. It's a, it's a, it's a promise uh, to commit to her, to commit to marrying her. And then there's this time in between that moment and the wedding where everybody loses their minds completely, right? We begin to plan the wedding and make arrangements. In the New Testament, it was a little bit different. And the New American Standard actually chooses the word betrothed. It's probably a word that's a little closer to what was actually happening. Because the custom of engagement in the first century was, was slightly different. Back then, a man would arrange a marriage with a woman's father. And, and with that arrangement, there were obligations that had to be met before the man could take the woman home fully as his wife, where she would fully come under his headship. If you're familiar with the language that we find in Genesis, that a man shall leave his father and mother and, the two, and, and cleave to his wife, and the two become one, this ties into the understanding in the first century of betrothal where a man makes preparations and meets obligations for a woman to come with him and the two to be together, where they leave their parents and they cleave to one another. And so it was common during this betrothal period for, for more than a year of time to pass between that pledge, that betrothal, and the marriage proper when cohabitation would begin, when they would move in together. However, once the arrangements were made, once a man went to a woman's father and, and there was an arrangement. The, even then, at that betrothal moment, they were considered husband and wife. The pledge was binding. In fact, it would require a divorce for those two to dissolve the agreement. And so as one commentator explains, this period of time was really like kind of part one of marriage. And so very likely what had happened with Mary and Joseph was that they were betrothed, they were, to use our word, engaged, but Mary was still living at her father's house. And so therefore, Joseph and Mary had not been together intimately. They weren't living together, even though, in a sense, they were already considered married. And this is where the story immediately gets interesting for us. This is where the scandal sort of comes in. Because during this time period of betrothal, where Joseph and Mary were not yet living together, and yet considered married, Mary became pregnant. We know from Luke's gospel that she's likely at least four months pregnant because Luke tells us that she spent the first three months at her relative Elizabeth's house. And so Mary is at least four months along in her pregnancy. And I, I don't think that I need to explain to you the reason why this was a concern for Joseph. But let's just say that Joseph didn't need to go to the Mari Povich show to find out that he is, in fact, not the father of this child. Naturally... Joseph assumes that his wife is pregnant with some other man's child. And so when he learns the news in verse 19, it tells us that Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace Mary publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Now, this language of Joseph being a righteous man means that Joseph was a follower of the law. 
There are different ways that the word righteous gets employed in the New Testament. It doesn't always mean exactly the same thing. And the way that Matthew tends to use the term righteous is to refer to someone who keeps God's commands, who walks in step with God's law. Matthew was a righteous man. He, he, he tried to abide by God's commandments. He tried to live in alignment with Torah. And, and the law gave clear instructions about the sin of adultery. Under the Mosaic Covenant, it was actually a punishable offense, even during this betrothal period. And so do you remember the story in John chapter 8 about the woman who was caught in adultery? Remember these religious leaders catch this woman in adultery and they bring her out to Jesus. And do you remember what they wanted to do to her? They wanted to stone her to death. Now, this isn't an arbitrary action. They, they weren't just stirred up to anger. They thought that they were fulfilling the Mosaic law in wanting to do this. They believe it was what the law instructed them to do. Joseph knew the law. He knew that adultery was a punishable offense. But we also learned that Joseph was, was a compassionate man. And so he didn't want to bring the letter of the law down on Mary, who was likely age 13 or 14 at this time. I want you to try to imagine this for a moment. Joseph, likely several years older than Mary, finds out that young teenage Mary is pregnant. He's caught in this dilemma. He doesn't want to disgrace Mary publicly. He doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to bring the letter of the law down on her, but he also can't imagine a way forward in this, in this relationship. This early into their marriage, she's violated things. Staying with her seems impossible. We try to imagine the hurt that Joseph may have felt, the humiliation that both of them may have felt. Well, the law made provision for a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and to send her away. It required only two witnesses. And so Joseph decides that this is what he's going to do. He's going to give Mary a certificate of divorce and he's going to send her away. But that night, Joseph has a dream. Verse 20 says that after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What the angel is telling Joseph is that the same spirit that was present in creation, hovering over the surface of the waters, hovering over the depths, that that same Holy Spirit had hovered over Mary and generated a child in her womb. That the child that was in Mary's womb was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now try to imagine waking up from that dream. What do you do with this? Would you believe it? Or better stated, do you believe it? Because it's a choice that's not limited to Joseph. It's something we're faced with as well. Joseph's dilemma is our dilemma. 
What are you going to do with the claim of a virgin birth? If you've grown up in the church, you've perhaps become inoculated to the scandal of Christmas. That what we celebrate this time of year is the claim that a young teenage girl became pregnant miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we really build our faith upon the claim that what was conceived in the womb of Mary was not the result of human infidelity, but rather divine activity. Every time someone's baptized, we recite the Apostles' Creed. And in the Apostles' Creed, we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is really bedrock for our faith. I can remember in college reading a book called Velvet Elvis. It sort of like infiltrated the universities. And in this book, Rob Bell explores kind of the confinements of traditional conservative Christianity. And one of the questions he kind of pokes on in the book and wrestles with is this question of the virgin birth. Let me read you an excerpt from, from Velvet Elvis. Bell asks this, he says, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? An archaeologist find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to followers of Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus. But what if, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language, at that time, the word virgin can mean several things. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the very first time she had intercourse? Now here's the question for Bell. Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live, or does the whole thing fall apart? Now, this is a critical question, right? Can you still be a Christian without the virgin birth? The way that we've traditionally understood the virgin birth. Now, I think the answer to that question rests on the next question that Bell asks. Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live, or does the whole thing fall apart? This is the fulcrum, right? Is the essence of Christianity a philosophy, a way of life, a guide for wise living, or is it more than that? In other words, what does Christianity say about who Jesus is and what he came to do? We get the answer in Joseph's dream. So let's look secondly at that. An angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to, to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son 
and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. These verses give us two fundamental names for this child that's born to Mary. The first is Jesus. In the Hebrew, Yeshua or, or Joshua. It literally means Yahweh helps or, or may Yahweh help or, or perhaps Yahweh saves or Lord save us. The angel in Joseph's dream tells Joseph, you're going to name him Yahweh saves because he himself will save his people from their sins. In other words, this child is God's definitive answer to humanity's problem. This this child, by the way, was not the only one named Yeshua or, or, or Jesus in the first century. It was actually a common name. It was a name that held hope that God's deliverance was coming. But see, what the angel's revealing is that the child would bear this name not because God's deliverance was coming in someone else, but because it had come in the child himself, right? That the child was the fulfillment of God's salvation. And there's this word that we might be tempted to just glaze right over that many theologians find important. It's the word altos in the Greek. He himself will save his people from their sins. The Old Testament's really clear that salvation belongs to the Lord, that it's Yahweh who delivers, it's Yahweh who rescues. But by inserting that word himself, the angel is indicating that Jesus is not merely the instrument of God's salvation, he's the source of God's salvation. That this child will himself be the one who rescues Israel from her plight. The angel goes on and gives Jesus another name. He tells Joseph that this child will be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, that the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. 700 years prior to Mary's mysterious pregnancy, the prophet Isaiah had spoken of a virgin who would give birth, who would become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his name would be called Emmanuel. This this word breaks down into three parts, im, with, menu, us, and el, God. With us, God is, if you want to say it like Yoda. Or simply, God with us. It's a name that points to to a unique manifestation of God's imminent presence. God in the midst of his people incarnationally. In the flesh. And the angel now tells Joseph... This child is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is how God will be with his people to rescue them. And notice what else the angel says. Notice the aim of his deliverance. He himself will save his people from their sins. Naturally, the the people of God hoped for a Messiah who would rescue them politically from their enemies, economically. And isn't this what we want? Isn't this what we so naturally desire? We want God to deal with our immediate frustrations. We tend to want healing and help at the surface level, a new job, a better house, a better spouse. 
more well-behaved kids, a different diagnosis. But the angel tells Joseph that the arrival of Jesus signals an even greater rescue. As Dale Bruner says it, Jesus' work is first of all to liberate people from their own evils. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. He came to deliver humanity from sin and its penalty. To reverse the curse and reconcile us to God. To heal us from the inside out. Dale Allison suggests that in those three words, from their sins, that the passion already comes into the picture. That right here at the beginning, Matthew is already telling us where this story is headed and where it ends. At a cross on Calvary Hill. It's at the crucifixion, says Allison, that Jesus pours out his life blood for the forgiveness of sins. And thus the entire gospel is to be read in light of its end. The Son of God became a human being, miraculously entering into the world as a child, that he might one day die a substitutionary death for the sins of mankind. I want you to listen to how the African church father, St. Augustine, so beautifully put this. Augustine says this, Begotten by the Father, he was made man in the mother whom he himself had made. The word of the Father, by whom all time was created, was made flesh and was born in time for us. The maker of man became man, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge. That he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust. That he, the teacher, might be scourged with whips, that he, the vine, might be crowned with thorns, that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that strength might be weakened, that he who makes well might be wounded, that life might die. To endure these and similar indignities for us, to free us, unworthy creatures. Back to Bell's question of whether or not Christianity falls apart on the issue of the virgin birth. If Christianity is is just a philosophy, a way of life, and if Jesus was simply a first century rabbi who had some really radical teachings about loving your enemy and caring for the poor, then no. But fundamentally, the claim of Christianity is is more than that. What Matthew is telling us is that Jesus was more than a mere man who showed us the best way to live. He certainly was that. He was way more than that. Jesus, what Matthew is saying, is the eternal Son of God who entered into human flesh and became a man. That he is the definitive answer to the problem of sin and who came on a rescue mission for us to save us from our sins. The virgin birth means that God came to us. It means that God came for us. And this is what sets Christianity apart really from every other religion. Every other religion in the world in some form or fashion boils down to man's best attempts at getting to God. Religion is a ladder 
that means trying to climb up to the divine. And the reality is that no matter how high you climb the ladder of religious performance, you can never ascend to heaven. Romans 3.23 makes it really clear that all of sin and we fall short of the glory of God. We can never climb our way into heaven. But see, the good news of the gospel is that though we can't climb our way to God, God came to us. God descended down the ladder and became a human fetus. He put on human skin and entered into the brokenness of our world through the virgin womb of Mary in order that he might redeem us. God became one of us. He identified with us so that he could die for us. This is what the angel revealed to Joseph. And this is what God desires to reveal to you and me. This really leads to the last part of our story, which is Joseph's decision. Joseph, Joseph had to decide what he was going to do. He had to decide what he was going to believe, and the same is true for each one of us. You have to answer what you're going to do with a virgin birth. But have you ever stopped to consider what the alternative is? What if it's not true? What if Jesus was born of natural conception and the whole story is made up? Where does that leave us? It leaves us in our sins. It leaves us stuck on the stairmaster of religious performance, never arriving. And worse, it leaves us in a godless world, a cold, empty, meaningless universe. And don't miss it, with just as much of a miracle to deal with. Glenn Scrivener says this, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Materialists believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Choose your miracle. Listen, rejecting the virgin birth does not solve all your riddles. It only creates more. And so admittedly, to be a Christian, you have to believe in a miracle. But to be an atheist, you do as well. Now here's the question. Which one makes the most sense of the universe? What do you make of love and beauty and purpose in a world without God? Where do you find hope in a godless world? Author C.S. Lewis finally became a Christian when he came to see that the story of Jesus was the story that made sense of all of the others. That it was the story that made sense of life. Lewis loved mythology. He loved myth stories. And, and he recognized that, that he found meaning in those stories, that those stories were really emblematic. They were representative of more than the story itself. They were telling us things about the world and what it was like. 
And finally, he came to see that the themes that kept reemerging in all of his favorite myths all trace back to the Christian story. What he ended up calling the true myth. It was a story so good it had to be true. He would later write this. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The world for Lewis finally made sense when he put his faith in the claims of Christianity and the miraculous birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is what Joseph came to see as well. The the angel's revelation led Joseph to put his faith in Jesus. Verse 24 tells us that when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him, that he married her but did not have sexual relations with her until he had given birth until she gave birth to a son and they named him Jesus commentators point out that by naming the child Joseph took on the legal responsibility for him that in the naming of the child Joseph stepped into a personal relationship with Jesus Joseph became the adoptive father of Jesus And what scripture teaches us is that when when someone today puts their faith in Jesus like Joseph, that they have actually been adopted as well by the Heavenly Father. Ephesians 1.5 says that God predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. God sent his only begotten son into the world so that through faith in him, we might also become sons and daughters. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26. And so just like Joseph, you and I are faced with the decision of how we will respond to the angel's declaration. Will we respond in faith or will we divorce ourselves from it? The world is telling us that the virgin birth is a silly myth. Matthew is telling us that it's our only hope that it's a true myth, that it's the story that puts everything in place and explains everything. And, And the call of Christmas is to step into personal relationship with Jesus the way Joseph did, to believe in him as your Yeshua, your deliverer, to, to believe in him as Emmanuel. Romans 8, 15 and 16 says, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. I wonder, does the Spirit testify this reality to your heart? Do you know God as Father? Do you know Jesus as Emmanuel? When you receive the good news of who Jesus is, it means that adoption becomes your story. You become a child of God. It means you're never alone. Because God is with you. And it also means that like Joseph, whatever dilemma you may be currently facing, the final word of your story is deliverance. You shall call his name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray together.